The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. It's an amazing thing that we get to sing. Christ is mine forevermore. That is by your loving, gracious action on our behalf, Father. We, we say thank you for that. What a privilege and gift, Christ. Thank you. And we ask you now for still more, that you would this morning draw near to us to teach to take your word that's in front of us and open it up in a way that we can hear it and understand it and be affected by it. So Father, will you give us your spirit now in abundance and in power to clear away distraction and illumine the word to show us Christ that is, he is ours. But make him fresh and alive now to us, please. And particularly make him fresh and alive for us now with with the issue before us in this psalm and produce change in us, grow us up. Make steadfast people from us. For your honor and for our good we pray this. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Those lights being on, it was nice when they were off, (laughs) if that's possible. Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, is about how people know and decide things quickly in the blink of an eye. The book is wide-ranging and absolutely fascinating. If you ever read it, it is a fascinating read. But one chapter I found particularly interesting discuss the findings of a researcher on the subject of marriage. Over time, this researcher had discovered that he could predict divorce with a very high degree of accuracy by observing just a a, a couple in dialogue with each other, interacting with each other, not, not for days or hours, but for minutes, and sometimes even for seconds. How could he do this? Well, he'd learned what to look for. In the blink of an eye, he could see it. He could identify the single greatest marker, tipping him off that divorce was coming to a couple. What do you think it was? The attitude that was revealed in their interaction when he saw it, settled contempt. When one person regards another as worthless, without value, nothing, and therefore as rightly deserving of being treated as worthless, as nothing, disdained, dishonored, disregarded, dismissed, despised and rejected, scorned, treated with contempt. The roll of the eyes, 
dismissed with voice or waved off with a hand. That settled attitude of contempt, an extremely serious wound for marriage. Now, our purpose this morning here is not to talk about marriage. Although I will say that if that kind of triggers something in you and you think about that and you want to talk about that, that might be a worthwhile conversation. I'd be more than happy to have that conversation. But that's not our purpose this morning. What I find interesting for this morning's context is the power that contempt had and has. It's piercing, and it can crush us when we're under it. Contempt is really hard here and really hard here. Because God knows that, he wants to help us here and here. And part of his help for us in dealing with contempt is, is to give us the psalms. In particular, these psalms that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks, the numbers 120 to 134, the, the psalms of ascent, these 15 poetic songs, that's what psalms are, these 15 poetic songs that all help draw people near to God, perhaps called psalms of ascent because of, maybe because of the context they were originally used in. They were gathered together and, and sometimes used by pilgrims ascending up to Jerusalem to go to the temple to worship at some of the feasts. We saw this setting last week in Psalms, Psalm 122. Maybe that's why they're, they're called that. But whatever the origin of the name, however they were collected, they have been useful for the people of God all through the centuries and useful for us today in our own drawing near, our own ascending into God's presence. They help us draw near to him and take things that we know up here in, in our, our heads and kind of move them down into our hearts and, and in so doing kind of knit our lives together with God to draw near to him, to come into his presence. And that's what we're going to be doing this morning with Psalm 123, particularly as it relates to the subject of contempt. To see how God, when we draw near to him, can help us to bear up under the, the crushing burden that contempt can be on us. So that's what we're going to look at this morning from Psalm 123. I'm going to make two observations from it, but they are of unequal length. But first, I'm going to read it. This is Psalm 123. It's short, only four verses. Here it is. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Psalm 123. Two observations, and here's the first. Expressed as a, as a command, as an exhortation to us, because it is kind of put to us commending something. So here's the first. Cultivate expectant dependence on our sovereign God. Cultivate expectant dependence 
on our sovereign God. The, the first two verses don't say anything yet about any specific problem that's coming up. They're just kind of preparing us for that by depicting for us the posture of a faithful Christian, the abiding stance of one. And of course, in doing that, it's commending this to us as well. So the posture that he's commending is, is like this. Look up. Verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes. Some other language to what we saw in 121, but here he's explicit. He's lifting up his eyes to the Lord, looking to God. To you who are enthroned in the heavens, says. My eyes, that is my, my heart, my mind's focus, my eyes are on you, O God. So we stand there like this. What do we see? What do we see there? We see him on the throne of heaven. It's Isaiah 6. With the train of his robe filling the room, as well as the, the smoke from the incense and the thunder and, and the loud echoed praises of all the angels. It's Daniel chapter 7. The Ancient of Days, white as snow, seated there, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall never be thwarted. Him there amidst all the angelic host, clothed in brilliant, glorious light, echoed praises and thunder. The Lord. Lift up your eyes. That's who you see. The Lord. But not abstractly, just the Lord, as verse 2 says, the Lord Yahweh, our God. He has a name. He's not impersonal or, or some abstract G-O-D. He's Yahweh. He has a name and he is ours, pledged to us in covenant faithfulness. This God enthroned. This is who we're talking about and who we see when we look up, lift up our eyes to him. And when you consider this one, the Lord. But how are we supposed to consider him? How are we supposed to look? Well, verse 2 begins with the word, behold, because it wants you to notice something, Christian. You know, I mean, if you've been a Christian for some time at all, you've read some of the Bible, you probably know, that's why I just alluded to them, Isaiah 6. You've probably read Daniel 7. You you're familiar with those scenes, and they, they resonate with you. You've, you've heard of them. And, and to say, like beginning of verse 1 to the end of verse 2, lift up your eyes and look and see him there, the Lord Yahweh. I even say that word. You know what I'm talking about. It's, it's all very familiar. But the word behold is trying to stop you. Make you look at something and to draw you in and maybe cause you to realize something and, and cultivate something. There is looking and there is looking. And what he's talking about here is looking. With attentive expectation like a servant looks to the hand of a master. 
Everyone reading this would have understood, understood the, the several aspects of that analogy. A servant looks to the hand of the master for what? Well, in part, in large part, surely for command and for instruction. But also, a servant looks to the hand of the master for provision and for protection. Negatively speaking, also for discipline or punishment. All those different things all together, a servant in one way or another, for good or for bad, knows that all of life comes from the hand of the master. That's, that's the way it is. We can look back and we can say, surely there have been bad servants and, and bad masters and good servants and good masters, and we could think about all the institution of slavery and bondage and all that. I'm not saying that's good and right. What the psalm is saying is, it is. And every culture throughout all of time has had this relationship and understands it intuitively. The master sits at the table and does that. And the servant has to move. Not be gazing out the window, distracted by the flowers, focused convinced everything 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 comes from the hand of this one for good or for bad that's the way it is behold just like that that's looking just like that in that way so too our eyes look to the lord god enthroned in heaven that's the abiding posture of the faithful christian Convinced my life comes from there, not from here, from what's outside the window or, or ruminating kind of inside of me in my own heart and mind. From his hand, that's where comes my instruction, that from there comes my, my commands, from there comes my protection, my provision, any discipline, any correction. It's, it, life is there. I'm convinced of that. And so with expected focus in hope, I look, I look. Waiting. It's really easy. It's really easy. We, we, we know the uh, Isaiah 6 and Daniel 7. We, we know that we get it. We understand it. But it, it, is, it is quite common that we aren't actually very focused on it and hardly expect much to come from him. But if he's this God enthroned, and if he's your God, and if he's this Lord, Yahweh, then he will give to you all of your life. And the psalmist wants to commend this to us and invite us to cultivate this kind of looking for anything and everything that you need, but particularly for mercy. That's where he goes in verse 2. To expect, to look expectantly, from your hand to me will come mercy. I'm going to wait. Mercy. The love of God extending itself to answer our need. Some spot where we're 
We're hurting. We're, we're short. We're compromised. We're broken. We face difficulty. We face some sort of a struggle. We don't deserve help from God. If we did, that would be justice, not mercy. We don't deserve help, but we sure need it. And we look to him to give it, and he will, because he's the God of mercy, the God of compassion for us. Look to him, expecting, watching for, waiting for, and confidently hoping in mercy from God to help me in my time of need. That's where this starts. The first two verses, just the setup. This is the psalm was presenting to us. Here's the posture of the faithful one. Cultivate that. Look, wait, expect. Particularly mercy to help us in times of contempt, which leads to the next point. Second observation. His mercy is the help we need amidst crushing contempt. His mercy is the help we need amidst crushing contempt. Verse 3, the psalm switches back to addressing God directly. At the end of verse 2, we come out of verse 2, and it's, he's the God of of, he's our God, he's the God of mercy, and so we look to him expecting mercy, and then it turns to him directly, have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us. And you hear in that the urgency, even the desperation. Why is he desperate? What's, what's the point? What's the need? Well, because we are full up with contempt, overflowing with it, suffering with more than enough of it. it says that twice, there's more than enough contempt the scorn that's been dumped on us, it's, it's a lot. And those who are at ease, they are, they are proud, they have no troubles, they, they sit in their, their easy chairs and they scorn us and pour on us contempt. That's the situation. The grammar may hint at, it doesn't limit it to, it doesn't, doesn't make certain, but it may hint at some particular type of scorn. Perhaps it's hinting at a, a scorn related somehow or another to our faith. You notice the language shifts. In verse 1, it's, it's I and me language. But then it shifts in, in 2 and 3 and following to us and our language. And so if we together, the people of God, are commonly facing something and commonly calling out to God, it's probably something about what we have in common, our faith. That's probably the, the main thing that he has in mind here. When people around in the world, not every single person, but the world in general, looks upon the people of God and says, you believe the Bible is the authoritative word from God? <laughs> Which it does say to us. Not every single person, but the world in general. You believe that Jesus 
is to be trusted and followed, not my own feelings. I'm not supposed to be me. No. Ain't good time for that. Contempt. You believe that Jesus crucified, crucified, is the only way to be made right with God and that that actually matters? Yeah. If we say those things and say them out loud and people get the impression that we actually believe that, contempt often follows. Especially when we are so bold as to say, in fact, everyone must believe these things or face the wrath of God. Say it politely and say it graciously. But when we say that, we say there's only hope in Jesus, this Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, and him crucified is the only way to be saved and we all must be, be saved. You say that and the world says, no. And laughs and mocks. That's the way it is. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But I'm saying it's, it's helpful to put that on the table and say, there, that, that's, that's reality. We face that. We understand it. We all have that in common. But you perhaps have other flavors of contempt in your life as well. It's not limited just to that. It's, it's contempt, broadly speaking, the sort of disdain and ridicule from others all around us for whatever reason it can be hard to take. And so think about why this is. Let's, let's, let's move into contempt a little bit to think about why it hurts. Contempt touches on the most vulnerable point of fear in all of us. Namely, the fear, the nagging suspicion, maybe not for you. I think it is for you, but I'll talk about me. The fear that I am, in fact, worthless. And that everything else is just a facade. Underneath it all, I actually am a nobody. And if I'm found out, I will be rightly laughed at and properly dishonored and rejected and left aside and unloved. Contempt hurts because it says out loud what I most fear. Secretly. I don't tell anybody this. But I'm worried about that. And contempt says it out loud, and then contempt invites others who appear to be doing great, strong and wise and secure, having everything that they need, successful, valuable and smart. It invites all those others to look at and join in the expose. 
the condemnation of my personhood, of my identity, my worth. That's me. Do you know that? Do you experience that? It's particularly painful when it comes from someone who got close to you once, like a friend or a spouse, which is why it trips off divorce so quickly. This one's verdict means more because they know me better. They're probably right. So what do you do when that kind of contempt, crushing contempt comes on you? Whether it's because of something related to your faith or or something related to your performance in life or who you are or how you look, what, what do you do? This is a problem in the world, and, and there's a way that the world deals with it. There are several ways the world de- deals with it. A lot of times, we just fight back. We get angry and return fire. Well, you're not either. Maybe we collect a contrary group of friends who will say, along with us, look at them, look at their shortages, look at their problems and faults. And you reject me, well, I don't have anything to do with you. I think if we look at the religious discourse in our country, sometimes we Christians are guilty of that. We, we bump into the non-believing world around us and feel from them the scorn, and we shoot right back at them. It's not a pretty sight. But maybe the whole crowd's against you and and firing back isn't very wise, so you run and and hide and protect. And we try to tell ourselves often enough, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. (laughs) I am, I am, I am, I am. We work on our self-esteem, and there, there can be some value in that. There can be some bring in some other bits of truth, but at the end, this, this doesn't work. It does not work in the world. It does not work for us because we know ourselves too well. It's hollow. Or we, we work on what we're being scorned for and try to improve and get better, and then I'll earn their approval. The world has this problem of contempt, and these are the various ways, perhaps there are others, that we all work on trying to to address this, but there's another recourse. There's a better path to this. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us. Eyes up. The mercy of God is really the help that we need. That's what we actually must look for and cry out to and depend upon him to give and wait for until he does. To be the kind of God that he is for us, the God of mercy, the God who relieves pains, who relieves hurts, soothes sorrows and fills up shortages in his people. His mercy on us. We have had more than enough of contempt So please have mercy and please remove it. Lift up your hand. So often in the Bible, the hand is the the instrument of power. Lord, I'm, I'm watching for your hand to be lifted up and to move and act and to remove the situation. 
Surely the psalmist is thinking like that and wants us to think like that too. Think of Hannah, the beginning of Samuel. You know the story, faithful Hannah, childless and held in contempt because she doesn't have any children. And what does she do? She cries out like this, have mercy on me, Lord, have mercy on me. Year after year, she goes up into the presence of God, have mercy on me. And God answers with Samuel and five other kids to boot. Or think of Nehemiah and the faithful ones in his day, held in contempt, scorned by all the... You're going to rebuild the city of Jerusalem from a pile of rubble. And they cry out to God, have mercy on us. And they build, and God gives them a city and safety. He did it in the days of Hannah, in the days of Nehemiah. He put down the proud, and he lifted up the lowly. He had mercy on them and removed off of them this crushing contempt and put them instead in a place of honor. And surely the first take on this has to be Seek him like that for such things. Eyes up, have mercy. Will you please lift off of me this crushing contempt? I'm not going to pull out my eyes and move to my own resources. Help. Pray to seek him and to wait for him to act like this and maybe to act yourself. Hannah took action. Nehemiah took action. It might be that as you pray with eyes up, one of the things that's important to do perhaps maybe is to expose someone to point out how he talks about you, what they do to you. That may be. Not instead of, in place of eyes fixed on the Lord, dependent on him, waiting for him, but with. He will have mercy on you. That's the kind of God he is. He brings an end to all contempt. Sometimes now. And I'm pushing hard in that direction because we should interact with God like this, but I, I also know that as, as even talking like that, some of us over here are thinking like, hmm, but he doesn't always do that. Right? He doesn't. I'll talk about that in a second. But he does sometimes do that. Pray, pray, pray. He did it with Hannah. He did it with Nehemiah. Perhaps he will do it in this day, in this week, in this month, in this year, in your life. So seek him. But seek him, keeping in mind the rest of the story. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes his answer to that is, I will lift off of you contempt and I will put down the proud one day one great day to come. You know the, cha the Hebrews chapter 11, the, the chapter of faith, how it has the first part of the chapter is these ones did these amazing things through faith and these ones then suffered through faith 
and he seems to want to include deliberately both sides, sometimes awesome stuff, sometimes perseverance through hard stuff. Same thing here. Sometimes God will answer now. Sometimes he'll say, there is a day when I will lift off of you all contempt and all proud mocking. I will have mercy on you in that day and all of your trial will be removed off of you and I will deliver you in fullness at the end. Both these things together. I need to and I want to and I want to ask you to please believe that he will answer prayer now. But I also want to and need to put right beside it and also believe that maybe he will answer prayer on that day. Pray. Do you pray? Do you hope? Do you wait? Do you wait in hope? And is it okay with you if he doesn't answer now, but only answers then? Is it okay with you? Does it sit well with you? If he answers the cry for mercy under the, the pain of contempt with, not yet, but one day. It has to be. Because sometimes he'll answer it like that. But I think, in the meantime, if he does not answer it now, but is only going to answer it then, in the gap here in the middle, in the time we live right now, mercifully, he gives us some more help to bear up under the contempt of this world. In other words, to live under the crushing weight without it being taken off of us. The crushing, the crush being relieved. And I think, in my mind, the whole sermon is about what's about to come. Because as I, as I thought about this stuff, I, I dealt with these verses here, I thought, I think, I'm preaching to myself here, I think I do pray for God to have mercy and to relieve I think I do have a healthy realization of, of the great relief to come at the end. But I still struggle right here. And then this is the part. That I, I think this part became most helpful. Think about how the mercy of God helps you right now amidst contempt. Think about this. The mercy of God frees you to live in honesty. Free from the need to make something work so as to prove something about yourself. It frees you, this mercy does, it frees you to be honest with all your failings and weaknesses and errors and uncertainties. Those are the elements that are that are the, the foundation pieces of, of the, the attack against you. And those are the things that rattle around inside of your mind that worry you. These are the flaws that others are pointing out. When you stand 
You stand naked in front of the mirror. Literally or figuratively. And you see all the weakness. You see all the sags and all the bulges. And you do. You see all your failures and all your weaknesses. The stuff that you don't know, the errors you make, the sins you commit, your your failed performance, you can face all of that in honesty and live with it. Because the mercy of God falls over all of that and says, yeah, you're right, that's true. Oh, thank goodness, because I was thinking it was true. It is, it's true. You are that, and you aren't that. And it's okay. It's okay. It's all true, but it's okay, because you're not condemned because of all of that. You're not worthless because of that. You're not unloved because of that. You're not unaccepted, rejected, and despised because of it. For that matter, you're not accepted, valuable, and loved if those things go away. Those things aren't relevant. In fact, you're standing one way or the other. It's not now and never will be based on your abilities, based on your performance, your obedience, your powers, your appearance, your savvy, your wisdom, your skill. None of that. It used to be. And so you were rejected because of your sin and failure. It did used to be. You, you did, used to stand in front of God, here's who I am, and he said, away from me. That was true. But it isn't anymore because you are in Christ, who himself was despised and rejected in your place so you could become an object of mercy. Accepted and loved just as much as is possible. By whom? In whose eyes? That one. In the eyes of the one who is sovereign over all things enthroned in heaven. The one from whose hand comes all of your life, comes every verdict that is true and meaningful. Whose eyes you are fixed on and whose eyes are fixed on you. The mercy of that God on you is great relief from contempt because, like pulling splinters out of a hand, it pulls out that which is piercing by simply saying, yeah, so? Yeah. So? You're in Christ, Christian. So the mercy of God puts onto you a great cover, a great 
seal around you that gives you the thickest of all skin because people can attack you and you say, yeah, I agree. Actually, it's more than that. You're right. But what you don't see is that I'm also in Christ. And by the mercy of God, I am loved and accepted and blessed and made holy in his eyes. The eyes of the Father himself look upon me and say, I know everything about you. I see you clean through and I embrace you and accept you because I scorned and rejected and despised him in your place. We did too. We scorned and despised and rejected him. And that too is okay covered by the mercy of God. And so everything about us, everything that's broken and wretched and fallen and ugly, we can live in honesty with it. When people accuse us, maybe they will be removed, maybe the trouble will be alleviated, sure, and one day it all will be completely. But here in the middle, when it piles on and when I pile it on myself because I know better, preach to yourself the mercy of God and cry out to him, Lord, show me your mercy, show me your mercy, show me your mercy, because it is the mercy of God that says, yeah, so? You're in Christ. You're covered. Loved and accepted, embraced and drawn near, and you wouldn't be more so if you were, what, better? It's not because of you anyway, it's because of him. You take what is contemptible in you, and there is a lot in you that's contemptible, And you put it in front of the mercy of God and he says, let me take that from you and set it on to Jesus and put onto you all of the vast, wide, long, high, deep love that I have for my son. It is now how I look at you. And if your eyes are set on him, that's all that will matter. Lift up your eyes to the Lord and see him enthroned above the Lord Yahweh, your God of mercy. Mercy that is new and fresh every morning and can be given to you afresh, new, in abundance every morning as you cultivate this habit of looking and waiting. Cover me in your mercy, Lord. Remove off of me that which is contemptible. Renew my mind. Cause me to see me as you see me, and then cause me to see you as that kind of a glorious God. This is hope for us amidst contempt. The mercy of God. Let me pray. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.